0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, Disinformation Nation, Tech CEO's back at the Capitol Grill, this time tackling concerns about misinformation from Congress.
1: The system isn't perfect, but it's the best approach that we've found to address misinformation in line with our country's values.
0: Axios reporter Sarah Fisher digesting the marathon hearing. When I watch a hearing like this for five and a
2: half hours, it's a lot of bickering and not a lot of
0: substance. And tech industry and press veteran Nikki Kristoff on what may actually spur change. Nobody
3: wants to work at a company where they feel like they're doing harm. And so I think when we see changes, a lot of that is from the internal tax on retention, attention, and recruiting.
4: Reminds me again of Spider-Man. With great freedom and with great power comes great responsibility.
0: And WeWork announcing it'll finally list on the public markets via SPAC merger. CEO Sandeep Mithrani on the long-awaited weighted deal.
5: The occupancy, the demand was never an issue. And we see green shoots today.
0: Those stories, plus a pitch from Warren Buffett, viewing wrecks from Joe, as always, and a union fight at Amazon. But first, a canal in chaos.
4: Titanic, like we saw Leo holding on before he went sliding down.
0: It's Friday, March 26, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody.
6: Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is out today.
4: An update now on the ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal. Officials say dredging operations, I can't even imagine what's involved here, at the bow of the ship are about 87 percent complete. What a complete pain this must be. While dredging is complete, the tugboats We'll resume efforts to dislodge the ship. They can't, there's no cranes big enough. They're using helicopters to try and move this thing. Brian Sullivan knows all about this. He joins us now with more. But how long is this going to be closed, this, this canal. Can you imagine what? It's a 1,300-foot ship. Can you imagine if that thing really dug in the side of the, uh, of the soil there and, and the dredging that would be required? You think about getting a car stuck. I mean, that is just unbelievable. I don't think we can fathom what it really uh, entails. No, I mean, the the way I described it at Worldwide
7: Exchange, Joe, was that you you park your giant SUV parallel and then two people move in and you've got an inch between the bumpers and you're trying to get out. That's kind of what it's like. This is not only a big ship. This is one of the biggest container ships in the world. 20,000 of those containers that you see on the back of 18-wheelers, there's 20,000 of those on this. Now, the worst case joe is the suez canal we all know one of the most important waterways transit points hubs whatever in the world could be closed for weeks doesn't mean it will that's kind of the worst case that is a bad case there is some hope this weekend on mother nature there is actually an unusually high tide that is going to flow in and officials in the suez and i was chatting with somebody in egypt yesterday they hope that that's just enough to lift the pressure on the bottom of this ship which you can see is turned completely sideways completely dug in in the mud now the suez right now remains closed what's the impact here right now we'll have to wait and see the suez is more for goods that are coming from asia to europe that ship by the way was going from china to rotterdam it had things like ducati motorcycles and beer from heineken and stuff like that on that ship and others now right now many ships are considering the longer route there's over 200 ships at anchor kind of waiting can they get into the suez should they wait it out or go the long way around the cape of good hope in africa that could add $500,000 to a trip there's also the increased risk of piracy you've got to go through some dangerous waters to do that by the way some impacts on this guys oil prices they're on the rise how come well if you're waiting for a load of oil or gas And it's not there. you got to buy it from somewhere. I can confirm yesterday that two cargoes of LNG from Chenier of Texas, it's their customers, not their, but they sold it to the customers, are being rerouted from Texas around Africa. They're not even going to try to go through the Suez. They said, you know what, let's just go around. They're on their way to Asia. Of course, shipping rates are already inflated. Supply chains are tight. And Smith Salvage was hired, Joe. Smith Salvage is kind of the, the Navy SEALs of rescue and a lot of people say, "Why don't they just unload the cargo?" They can't. There's no cranes. The only way to get those containers off the ship would be by helicopter. You played <laughs> scenes from an Italian restaurant. Remember Brenda and Eddie, the popular studies, the King of the Queen of the Prom. Well, the big water bed they bought with the bread they had saved for a couple of years is sitting on a container. <laughs> I'm
4: glad you. I'm glad you're as crazy as I am, Brian, to bring up totally uh, in, insane things in, in the conversation. So t- uh, to go around. South, or the tip of Africa, South Africa, is that good hope or good, or I think that's good hope, isn't it? That takes an extra two weeks. Good hope. An extra two weeks and costs a lot more money, does it not? Four
7: to five hundred thousand bucks, depending on the type of ship, of course. I mean, it depends on if you're a super tanker or this. Container ship rates have already been inflated, Joe. We talked about that container story when I was down in South Carolina a few weeks ago. It's not like these ships are just sitting around. So if you own one of these ships that's not stuck waiting to go through the Suez, it's good times. Because people are going to pay you whatever it takes to get their cargo. I mean, this has become like an Internet meme, the little digger that could. I mean, there's (laughs) one guy in a backhoe trying to pull the ship out. There's tugboats pulling it. The water is not that deep. And and I'm not going to try to scare anybody, okay? But, Joe... There is some concern about the ship's structural integrity. Not right. yet. Not saying there's a huge risk, but reading something last night. Don't say because it. the front is jacked Titanic. up. If Titanic. If the rear gets jacked up, it right. could sag in the middle.
4: Titanic, like like we saw Leo holding on uh, before he went sliding down into the you know old, because that things like that don't even say that. But Brian, I thought we did a lot of. We have a lot of domestic production. It's, the Suez Canal isn't what it used to be for for oil traffic. What is it's like? What ten percent of all products, something like uh, of all the last oil, seven sipping, or seven ish. But and we haven't really seen it yet. But we will, I, I would think, if this continues. Anyway, we got to. Uh, w- which movie was that? They bought a, so there's water, but you know for a fact there's water beds on that boat. No, it was a reference. <laughs> I was trying to connect the dots between it's your Billy Joel Billy reference. Joel. Oh, oh, okay. But- Senator Bernie Sanders is heading to Alabama today just as a big unionization vote is coming up at an Amazon warehouse that's set to wrap up. Deirdre Bosa joins us now with all the details. Deirdre.
8: Well, Joe Sanders is just the latest in a steady stream of lawmakers to visit that warehouse. But he has struck a major nerve with Amazon, which has long discouraged attempts among its U.S. employees to organize. Now, yesterday, I told you guys about that Twitter spat where a top Amazon executive hit out at Sanders causing another lawmaker to jump in and accuse Amazon of conditions that were so bad workers have to urinate in bottles. Now, Amazon's official Twitter handle then tweeted, you don't really believe peeing in bottles is a thing, do you? If that was true, nobody would work for us. Well, it turns out that that tweet has not aged well. The Intercept got a hold of internal documents from Amazon workers that show the company is aware that employees urinate and defecate on the job, We did reach out to Amazon on this, but we haven't heard back yet. The point, though, guys, is that ballots, they will begin to be counted this Tuesday. And no matter the outcome, this battle will continue to play out uh, through appeals on either side. And it represents Amazon's biggest labor challenge ever in the U.S., one that could threaten the company's control over warehouse and delivery employees and that efficiency that has made it the top e-commerce player and the number two employer in the country. So it will be fascinating to watch how this plays out, not just over the next few weeks, but over the next few years, guys, this isn't going anywhere.
4: Yeah, uh, I-, I knew we were going to talk about this, Deirdre, but I uh, didn't know it was going to get uh, get that much uh, info about everything. You know, I'll tell you what happens out where I live. When they're delivering, they park in the middle of the street. They park in the middle of the street, these Amazon trucks. It's like I don't know. They they are fast and they're they're doing their job and everything else. But a lot of times these guys are just, hey, I got to do what I got to, guys and gals. I got to do what I got to do. Uh, seems like Amazon's getting comfortable, Deirdre, uh, talking back uh, to senators. Last night it hit back at Elizabeth Warren on tax policy. So I don't know. That's like poking the bear. Is that smart?
8: <laughs> yeah. I mean that has been Amazon's strategy as of late. It's not unprecedented. We've seen them do this before, but. Um, they're really making this big push right now regarding the Elizabeth Warren tweet on tax laws. Amazon responded, you make the laws, we just follow them. If you don't like the laws you created, by all means, change them and then went on to talk about how much in taxes Amazon has paid. But these sort of spicy tweets, these comebacks have a lot of people scratching their heads, especially when it comes to the labor issues, Um, because the last year has been unlike any other. Right. We've been in the middle of a pandemic. Amazon warehouse workers and delivery drivers, they have been essential workers. There's been some issues um, in terms of what Amazon is or isn't providing and their transparency when it comes to. COVID numbers. So is this something that could backfire? Potentially, we'll have to wait and see. It also could be sort of a way for them to rally the other side. Republicans, uh, those lawmakers that don't support unionization efforts if this does play out in Congress. Uh, so like I said, this is just starting. Um, there's so much to be done. Amazon is the number two employer in the country. So not just a lot for them at stake, but for the lab- labor movement as a whole, one that Democrats right. uh, are very well aware of, as we see by Sanders' visit.
4: to thank you.
6: Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is pitching Texas lawmakers on a plan to spend $8.3 billion to build power plants that would run during electricity emergencies, like we just saw um, over the last two months, I guess. That comes just a month after the state suffered devastating blackouts. The plan would involve building 10 natural gas plants that would only operate during extreme times of need. Things like extreme heat, things like extreme cold, and not otherwise compete in the state's power market. And, Joe, this is an interesting uh, proposal. I think it's got the characteristics of kind of a Buffett deal where they come in and say, we will build this. We want guaranteed returns, I think 9% or something that was said, at least according to the Wall Street Journal. Um, But in return, Berkshire also saying, if these plants don't work, we will write a $4 billion insurance policy to cover any problems that would have been there from the lack of energy. And that's... Probably a compelling deal, at least on some fronts, to some of these uh, some of these. politicians who are looking for an answer to make sure that they can tell people this is never going to happen again. We we heard yesterday from Richard Fisher, who said that 500,000 people have moved to the state from places like California and New York and New Jersey, people who have gotten away from some of the high taxes and wanted to go down there. You've got businesses like the New York Stock Exchange thinking of setting up servers and doing things down there with some of their business. But my guess would be that the first question for any business is, how do you make sure that we don't run into problems like this again? How do you guarantee the power will stay on? Texas has that, a lot of advantages, but this one um, was a little bit of a problem.
4: That is a Buffett deal. The 9 percent, it's like ka-ching, because nobody gets 9 percent, but he will. And, and then where can we get the insurance company? We
6: can oh, probably get yeah, the insurance from
4: uh, that's perfect for him. But, right. yeah, and he's got – I we know that he's sitting on some stuff going, I'm, I'm not – Doing anything with this right now? I'm sure he is because of things are so crazy. Don't you think he's got some money that to, oh, to, yeah. to blow? And it, it's like
6: more than 120 billion dollars. Right. Think.
4: So this yeah, is one you of start, those you, things you
6: could invest in this. I think they could probably do it quickly. It would provide an answer to the politicians who need to be able to say we have a solution to this because we haven't heard any real solutions to this point. And mm-hmm. you know these problems that were never supposed to happen. How do you, in an unregulated market, make sure that it doesn't happen again? That's you know.
4: Yeah, if I go to borrow Probably money I'm looking for an
6: easy and quick solution.
4: It, it, or if 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 I'm going to lend money to someone, they they can't say, you know, Joe Kernan lent me money. So, uh, I'm going to pay just because I have Joe Kernan lending me money, I'm giving him 10%. But Buffett, the 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 company that is, you know, that is in bed with him can say I'm in bed with Warren Buffett. As a result, he gets 10 or 12%. Remember back in the financial crisis? It's like, you know, Buffett, Goldman GE, Sachs whatever it Goldman was. Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Yeah. So the company can say, you know, Warren gave me some money, and Warren can say, ha-ha, 12% (laughs) in a 2% uh, interest rate environment. Uh, From Goldman Sachs, who's probably good for it.
0: Coming up on Squawk Pod, unpacking the five and a half hour Capitol Hill hearing with Alphabet, Twitter, and Facebook CEOs.
1: If what you're asking is, are we ever going to be perfect? The answer is no. I think that there will always be some mistakes, but I think we will get increasingly accurate over time.
0: I promise our recap is much shorter. Tech and press veteran Nikki Kristoff on the politics
3: of it all. At the end of the day, it's a regulatory bloodletting. It doesn't fix the ailment. It
0: probably does more harm than good. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Another capital grilling in the books for big tech CEOs. Facebook CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai sat in a Cisco Webex for five and a half hours to answer questions from the House subcommittees on communications and technology and consumer protection and commerce.
1: Mr. Pichai, uh, are you Hi, unmuted? I want one. Sorry, I was muted.
0: The goal was to address the role of these platforms in spreading and stemming disinformation and their accountability in the capital riots, for example. The CEOs each commented that they're doing the best they can, but admitted there's room for improvement. Eventually, the group touched on the Communications Decency Act of 1996 and, of course, the famed Section 230, that is, the liability shield that lets these companies off the hook, legally, anyway, for harmful content that appears on their platforms.
1: 230 still broadly is important, so I wouldn't repeal the whole thing. These uh, policies really do need to apply more to large platforms, and I think we need to find a way to exempt small platforms so that way... You know, when I was getting started with Facebook, if if we'd gotten hit with a lot of lawsuits um, around content, it might have been prohibitive for me to get started.
0: Lawmakers accused the CEOs of allowing misinformation and hateful content to proliferate. And Democrats claimed that divisive content, including that misinformation, drives engagement, and that the platforms have a financial incentive to keep it up. Here's Illinois Democrat Representative Robin Kelly. Do each of you acknowledge that your company has profited off harmful, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and violent content on your platform. Just a yes or no.
1: No, that's not our business. I don't think we profit from it. I think it hurts our service.
0: Certainly not our intent. Since you all said no, can you please provide to me in writing how you managed to avoid collecting revenue from ads either targeted by or served on such content? Overall, it wasn't unlike the last few tech CEO hearings on the Hill perhaps with fewer tech glitches than normal, I guess we're all getting better at this virtual thing. Only took a year. There was, of course, a lot of please answer yes or no, a lot of airing of grievances, but not a lot of actionable items. Zuckerberg did suggest an independent board, although, as often happens, he didn't have time to elaborate.
1: I don't think that private companies should make so many decisions like this alone. We need an accountable process, which is why We create an independent oversight board that can overrule our decisions. And we need democratically agreed rules for the Internet. The reality is our country is deeply divided right now. And that isn't something that tech companies alone can fix.
0: So after five and a half hours, still no real movement on legislation that could take a bite out of disinformation on Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Here's Joe.
4: You know, I I think it reminds me again of Spider-Man with great freedom. Actually, they say with great power uh comes great responsibility but with great freedom and with great power comes great responsibility and it just you know the point was made though i i feel bad for zuckerberg he he needs to read every one of those he needs to get you know it's going to take him a while but he needs to look at every post i think you know what i mean
6: joe your line about with great power comes great responsibility it's it's funny because yesterday i was talking to uh, a Washington policy type for one of the big tech companies and I used that same line <laughs> in quoting to them like why yeah. you know, why don't you go after these other people well because you guys are the biggest you guys are the ones who exist you are the ones who are going to be making decisions on this I don't care about Mother Jones or some of these other little places that I haven't seen anything from forever you are the ones who are the influencers yes. and with great power comes great responsibility
4: I think that was Toby Maguire's um, uncle uh, the, the late great uh, yes. Cliff Robertson, uh, I believe. And the other one I always use, it's embarrassing, uh, where I get, uh, these aren't Shakespeare. Uh, my other one is from Jock Ewing. Uh, Nobody gives you power, Bobby. you got to take it. <laughs> that's from Dallas. Uh, that's yeah, from that's Dallas. that's back. Um, I
6: remember that, too. Yeah, yeah,
4: that's a good one, though. I loved him, too. Uh, yeah. uh, Jock Ewing. Well, the Jim Davis, I think, is the, I loved him. He's gone, too. It's not bad. You know I have a problem with, I don't think you have enough ten tremolo and you're whistling. There you go. That's better.
0: Joe and Becky spoke to journalist Sarah Fisher of Axios and tech industry veteran Nikki Kristoff, who's managed press and public policy for Google, Salesforce and Uber. Here's Becky.
6: Sarah, let's start with you and just get a a takeaway from how much damage was done to these tech companies yesterday. Do you think they got out unscathed? Do you think that they got beaten up? What, What do you think?
2: Well, I think this hearing was more productive than previous hearings. Usually you have conservatives just talking about bias, but this time they actually address some stuff, substantive things that I think both palli- parties will rally around, like child bullying, harassment, et cetera. I think the key takeaway though from this hearing is that these hearings aren't very you know, productive in determining what the future laws are going to actually look like. Now we know that laws are coming. Representative Cicilline, who leads House Committee on Antitrust told Axios this past week that he plans on putting out a barrage of antitrust bills by May to make it harder for these companies to respond to one giant bill. But when I watch a hearing like this for five and a half hours, and it's a lot of bickering and not a lot of substance. It makes it hard for me to foresee what a bill like that is even going to look like because we're not really talking about much. It's more about sound bites at this point.
6: Exactly. And and, and Nikki, you've been around this before. You know how Washington works. You know how things operate. What does this mean just from a realistic perspective? There's uh, everybody mad on both sides of the aisle, but they're mad for different reasons. So how does that ever work out into any sort of legislation?
3: That's right. So in yesterday's hearing, we saw a little more focus than we have in the past. The members were energized. uh, You know, Anger at the tech industry is a bipartisan issue. Certainly they're facing regulatory headwinds. But Yesterday's hearing, I would handicap at a 0.0% chance of producing a bill that ultimately becomes a law, um, specifically around content moderation. It's an impossible, unsolvable political riddle, and it's just not going to happen.
6: Is there something, Nikki, that could happen from another agency? Is there some sort of oversight or some sort of regulatory um, oversight that, that could really pose a bigger threat to these tech companies right now?
3: I think absolutely we're going to see more enforcement. And you're right, it's going to be out of the executive branch. It will be on antitrust. I think a a topic we're not talking about enough is equal employment uh, enforcement, EEOC enforcement. I think we'll see that. I do not think, though, that we're going to see Section 230 uh, amended, repealed, because at the end of the day, it's a regulatory bloodletting. It doesn't fix the ailment, it probably does more harm than good. And the companies that really bear the cost of that are the smaller companies like Nextdoor or Reddit. Facebook's not going to have any trouble. YouTube's not going to have any trouble absorbing increased compliance costs or lawsuits or liability. It's really the smaller players. So I just don't see that
6: happening. Hey, Sarah, you, you cover Congress and you know um, what they do, what they've seen. Um, they must be pretty mad about the general um consensus right now, which is that, you know, they can scream all they want, but nothing's going to get done. Is there anything you see that could potentially work towards something um, that would address some of the issues we've talked about and and that have have really kind of risen in terms of, you know, the algorithms for these big companies, whether they are seeking out misinformation and then uh, amplifying it? Um, Is there anything that you think there could be any sort of bipartisan uh, deal or even a deal that, takes the Democrats where they would have to have everybody on board and and push that through?
2: There's two things I think that they could get done. One is a national privacy law. It's something everybody wants because it's not consumer friendly to have a different law in each state. And we're heading in that direction. So I think that could actually happen. The second thing is if they introduce a lot of these bills could be around content moderation. It could be around A.I. and surveillance, whatever it is, even if they can't get them passed. Sometimes the pressure is enough to make fundamental changes. And I'll point back to the Honest Ads Act in 2017 allowed around political ad transparency. We couldn't get that passed, even though it was bipartisan bill. But it returned a bunch of transparency efforts by Google and Facebook so that it actually implemented the law without the law being passed. So there are some things that they're going to be able to do. But I agree. It's not going to be easy to tackle Section 230 or some of this content moderation stuff. It's just too complicated. And Congress is just too divided right now.
6: Nikki, if you were advising any of these big tech companies, the CEOs who testified yesterday, what would you be telling them to do right now? Because they all have taken slightly different stances. You know, Facebook is out there saying, yeah, we think there should be a change to 230. The other company saying not necessarily the case. What would you advise?
3: Well, the truth is for those three companies, for YouTube, for Facebook, for Twitter, again, if anything, it just reinforces their strength and their dominance to have a change to the law because they can absorb it. I think for Twitter and Google, being against changing Section 230 is is more ideological. Um, The real business cost of yesterday's hearing is in employees being distracted and demoralized. Nobody wants to work at a company where they feel like they're doing harm. And so I think when we see changes, a lot of that is from the internal tax on retention, attention, and recruiting. And those CEOs have been facing that for several years. They're going to continue to face it. And I think that's why they make some of the calls that they
6: do. Good to hear. Nikki, Sarah, uh, thanks for
0: your time this morning. Next on Squawk Pod, WeWork has joined the chat. The SPAC chat, that is. The embattled co-working company has finally agreed to go public through a SPAC merger with Bo X Acquisition Corps. We work CEO Sandeep Mutrani.
5: The company never had a problem with occupancy or demand. The company's issue was it had a cost structure which was upside down.
0: And Bo Capital Managing Director Vivek Ranadive.
9: This tsunami that's coming, where just about every company in the world now is taking flex space, not as a nice to have, but as a must have.
0: That conversation right after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Here's Becky.
6: Another big step for WeWork in the post Adam Newman era, the co-working company agreeing to go public through a SPAC merger. It's going to be combining with Boax Acquisition Corporation in a $9 billion deal that includes debt. Joining us right now first on Squawk Box is WeWork CEO Sandeep Mathrani, also Bo Capital founder and managing director Vivek Ranadive. And gentlemen, want to join, welcome both of you uh, today and thank you for being with us. Um, so many questions about this, and there's been so much speculation about what would happen, some leaks that came earlier this week in the press. But Sandeep, let me ask you first, um, why now for a SPAC merger and an IPO planning on this, and why BOEX?
5: Thanks for having me on, on uh, Becky. Uh, you know, sometimes you don't pick the path, the path picks you. Uh, and uh, in December, we were approached uh, by, by BOEX and other SPACs. Uh, we looked at our, our plan, uh, we'd seen what we'd accomplished in 2020, uh, and we'd seen a path to profitability, and we thought it was a good time to raise additional liquidity, to de-risk the balance sheet, uh, and to make sure uh, that we had a path to profitability. So sometimes, you know, the, path's, uh, the path picks you, you don't pick the path. Uh,
6: Vivek, let's, let's talk about the opportunity you see here. Why, why do you think that this is uh, something that you can add value to?
5: Uh, Thanks for
9: having me as well, Becky. Uh, I launched the SPAC a few uh, months ago, and uh, it was really to fuel the next generation of rocket ships. Uh, We wanted to fuel growth companies. Uh, And what we saw in BoEx was a company – what we saw in WeWork uh, was a company that had billions in recurring revenue. Uh, It could be a rule of 50 company in the future. Uh, It's leaning into a gigantic uh, space, uh, which is, is the market leader in Flex space. Uh, it's going to be trillions of dollars in terms of its uh, uh, total available market. WeWork is the leader in the space. It has a inc- incredible moat built around the business. Uh, and it's got a, a world-class CEO, a, a superstar like Sandeep. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, COVID was actually a tailwind for, for FlexSpace. Uh, so if Zoom was the opportunity stock uh, for the COVID era, uh, we believe that WeWork is going to be the opportunity stock for the recovery,
6: Sandeep, there there was some bad press earlier this week concerning WeWork work and your finances. There were some slides that I think were leaked from the presentation you must have been showing to some of these institutional investors who picked up, and there were things written in the papers that said that you lost what was it, three point two billion dollars last year, and that came even after you slashed capex by ninety eight percent. They said your occupancy fell to forty seven percent. Are those numbers accurate?
5: Yeah, so let me explain them to you, right? So when people talk about numbers, they talk about you know the three point two billion dollars and what they should really be focused on. After three point two billion dollars, I'm going to be I'm going to be very blunt and break it down. You know, nine hundred million dollars was what they call building impairments, which is we you know, we gave back over a hundred locations. And for accounting purposes, you take an impairment job. It's a non-cash charge, a non cash uh, charge. You got seven hundred million dollars of depreciation and amortization. Uh, you've got $200 million of restructuring costs. We, we, you know, we, 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 we took off $1.2 billion of SGNA from the company, and that has a restructuring charge associated with it. So if you actually look at the business itself and look at the EBITDA of the business, actually the loss was $1.8 billion. And in the previous year, in in 2019, it was $3.9 billion. So you really have to compare numbers. Uh, by looking at what, what's the cash, uh, you know, EBITDA loss, it was actually $1.8 billion. Um, so, so uh, you know, I just want to clear, you know, clear the air uh, because you can be selective in how you look at your numbers.
6: What about the occupancy rates? Because I, I think you were running north of 70% before the pandemic hit. Uh, some of these reports suggested that your occupancy fell to 47% and that you're anticipating you could get to 90% occupancy by the end of next year. Is that an accurate reflection?
5: So, so again, one has to look at the numbers, the revenue in 2019 for the company was $3.2 billion. What might surprise most people is the revenue held constant uh, in 2020 at $3.2 billion. So we were flat on revenue and you would assume a business like our flex business revenue would actually go down. Uh, the reason the occupancy went from 70% to 47% was essentially we opened over 200 locations in the pandemic these were locations that were signed pre-pandemic and they were under construction and development and when you open 200 locations and you put it into the denominator uh and you're opening it in a pandemic and obviously the occupancy would be very low in new locations you would expect the occupancy as a portfolio uh to come down to 47 percent but what again like i said if you focus on the revenue number it was 3.2 billion in 2019 and 3.2 billion dollars in in 2020 if you look at the mature markets, okay, uh, pre-pandemic of this company, the average occupancy was 88%. Uh, you know, and so, if, you know, again, the company never had a problem with occupancy or demand. The company's issue was it had a cost structure which was upside down. And we've got, like I said, $1.2 billion in functional expenses, including SG&A, uh, $400 billion in OPEX, $200 billion in real estate costs. And we have room to cut about another $150, $200 million of costs in the system. We've got $1.8 billion of costs in, uh, in, in 2020, which puts us on a path to profitability. So again, like I said, the occupancy, the demand was never an issue. And we see green shoots today. We've got 33 markets that are up double digits uh, in the last 60 days uh, all around the world. Wow. Uh, starting off in Asia and hmm. Augusta, going all the way to America.
6: Let me ask a couple of things that you just mentioned there. First of all, you said this puts you on a path to profitability. When does when do you anticipate seeing profitability?
5: Uh, you know, you know, when I started this company in February of last year, the question was, can I really make this profitable? It was an if. Uh, it's, never, it's no longer an if, it's a when. Uh, so we hope to get to profitability by the end of this year, uh, 2021. We're on path.
9: Hey, Becky, I just wanted Vivek, to say um,
5: that if you do absolutely
9: nothing with this ahead. business, it's a five billion revenue mm-hmm. business with a, over a billion in EBITDA and if they then just hold their market share by the end of the decade it's like a 25 billion dollar business with billions in EBITDA so this is an incredible uh, it, it's really a, a value buy that we're getting but it's a growth company
6: Sandy, let's talk about that. You mentioned green shoots and what you've seen just in the last few months. What, what do you see in the United States when you look at some of the big markets there, like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, places maybe that haven't come back as quickly as maybe in Austin or Houston or
5: Orlando or Miami? You know, I, you know, Ben, being a global company, we get to see what happens into cities uh, when, when the pandemic is more in the rear view mirror. So if you start off like in China, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Beijing is up 14 points in occupancy, Shanghai is up 12 points in occupancy. And if you start to then go across- is that year the over world, year
6: or quarter over quarter?
5: Uh, quarter over quarter. Um, so if you start to okay. see how you go across, you know, you 27% in Taipei, uh, 45 points, the percentages in Munich, okay? Uh, 20 points in Manchester, UK. Uh, and then if you start to come to America, which is about a quarter behind the rest of the world, it's 27% up in Phoenix. It's 16 points up in Miami. Uh, you know, 11 points you mentioned to Austin, Texas. So Austin. And finally, we're starting to see, you know, light at the end of the tunnel in cities like New York. Uh, you know, for us, uh, March would be one of our largest months of new activity uh, in the city of New York. And even in San Francisco, uh, we're starting to see activity. So again, look, there's, there's, you know, a lot of people are being caught flat footed. No one expected uh, the country to be vaccinated or have the ability to be vaccinated by the end of March. And now all of a sudden there's this whole march towards uh, coming back to work uh, sometime in June. Uh, I think KPMG just produced a report, uh, I think yesterday or the day before. And you know from a few months ago, when 69% of the CEOs said, oh, we're gonna come back to work on a regular basis, Today, only 17% are saying uh, we will not come back to work on a regular basis, 83% are coming back to work. And we're seeing the aspect of coming back to work. I think Amazon's uh, uh, head of real estate said the other day in a, in a newspaper uh, that we're going to go back to work uh, because it's the right thing to do. It's where the culture is. So I think you know there's going to be a huge shift uh, in coming back to work and, uh, and, 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 where we, and we see where people you know, we're, the, we're a flex provider, so we're completely the 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 person who would see it first uh, because you know we're plug and play, and we're starting to see even in New York uh, now new activity. So are we're, we're we're pretty optimistic.
6: We are watching uh, the. BoEx Acquisition Corp. We're watching that uh, climb by about 3.6 percent coming through this. Part of the interest here, Sandeep, I think, was the institutional investor interest in this. You were oversubscribed in the pipe, I think, $800 million versus maybe $520 million that you were looking to raise. These are serious investors, people like Fidelity, places like Fidelity, BlackRock and um, – Barry Sternlicht, um, watching the investors that really came through here. These are people who are making bets on what? They are making bets on you. They're making bets on the return of cities, on the return of people going back to workplaces.
5: So, so Becky, one thing is we we went out looking for a pipe of $500 million. We were never going to announce a SPAC deal unless we had a fully committed pipe. Uh, And our pipe is $800 $800 million. Dollars. So it's obviously fairly, fairly oversubscribed. So we couldn't be more pleased uh, with, with the with the roster of investors. Uh, I think people are making bets on multiple things. I think people are making bets that effectively you're getting a company, you know, uh, at, a, at a pre-vaccine price for a post-vaccine, uh, you know, sort of company. So they're seeing a huge rebound, uh, you know, in, in, in the business of flexibility. Uh, you're looking at the TAN, the total addressable market. Uh, so if you look at any st- today, the temp for this business, just the flex business, the way it is uh, today is 3% of the market can grow to 13% of the market. So you're seeing that, hey, this company can actually, if they just deploy the capital back into the business, can grow, uh, can go rapidly. Uh, and, and, the, and the last aspect here is uh, they, they do see the fact that there is something more. There is some, they could be icing on the cake if we can, if we can really get the middleware to work. But like I said, just purely on its on, on its real estate platform, uh, this this company is you know today value play because we we've gotten to it to a place that if I don't add another piece of real estate, I don't do anything. But just bring the buildings uh, back to occupancy, we get to a, a billion dollars uh, of of cash flow uh, by 2023, and 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 that puts us in line, uh, you know, as like as, as Vivek said, you know, uh, a value play.
6: Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for joining us today. Um, again, these are people who know the business well. Sadeep, you've got the retail uh, retail uh, property business background. And Vivek, uh, obviously interested in hearing more about what you guys are going to be working on. But we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for your time.
5: Thanks for having us back, Becky. Becky,
6: the,
4: you have Hulu, right? Yeah. I think you can watch. Uh, it's, a, it's for the kids. Don't let the, the kids. But... Nomad Land. I mentioned it the other day, Francis uh, McDormand. It's, it's kind of yeah. touching. It, it's, it's kind of uh, probably going to win Best Picture, according to my son. It's, it's no, I, I, le-
6: I read up on it because it's gotten so, so much critical acclaim. The Re- reason I bring it up,
4: that they're nomads, they are nomads that live in vans, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And it's very mm-hmm. uh, sort of, it's maudlin and, and sad, and, but mm-hmm. very, uh, you know, it's just really good in terms, and she's a, she's, she is amazing. But her van, this is why I'm bringing it up, you know what she named her van that she travels around in? What? Vanguard. Nope. So that's the only reason I brought up the massive... Oh, uh, yeah. that's smart. <laughs> I know. My free association. <laughs> Very but, smart. Uh, putting in a, a, a plug for... Uh, she, she's amazing. But don't, don't look for the... I don't know. I did feel uplifted at the end because you just sort of... Life is... You know, throw stuff at you.
0: That's a wrap on today's show. Thank you for sticking with us for another week. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend.